Let's turn to Mark chapter 15. This week, um, you know, this begins Holy Week, which is um, like holy means set apart. Um, this week is not like any other week of the year. This this is the end of the end of Lent, the home stretch here, but this is not like any of the other weeks. And so today is Palm Sunday, uh, which I will not be talking about Palm Sunday because we're trying to get through Mark, right? Uh, and so, uh, but today is Palm Sunday, so Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, and everyone went crazy. And then a few days later, they went a different kind of crazy. They went from saying, he's the Savior, he's the one we've been waiting for, to saying, kill him. Uh, kill him now. And so uh, this begins that week. And uh, every day we know from the Gospels, we know what, what happened on Monday and went on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And so we're going to be pushing those things through via email and social media and stuff just to kind of like maybe bring it into real time a little bit more. Uh, Thursday night in here at 630, there is uh, our Maundy Thursday service. Uh, Maundy is talking, it means it's referring to the new commandment that Jesus gave that night with his disciples and so we'll get together, we'll sing, we'll talk about that new commandment to love one another as he has loved us and what that looks like and how we've experienced it. And uh, we'll close the night by having communion together and singing just like the disciples did. Uh, and so child, we have child care lined up. We do need you to register for it. But uh, if you need, to, you need to be here. You need to come to this. Like It's, it's going to be great. And uh, there's something about celebrating this week in real time that's very important. And so... We're going to try to do what they did on Thursday night. On Friday, uh, we have a service that starts at 7, and it's only about half an hour. Um, and it is, it's dark, because Good Friday is dark, as we'll see uh, this morning. Um, but at 5.30, we're just going to open up this room, and it'll be still. And uh, if you just want to come from work or just come early and just just come into a quiet place, a still place to read, to pray, to just kind of ponder and to kind of prepare yourself for the service at seven. This will just be open for that purpose. And um, we'll have the Good Friday service. And then, of course, on Sunday, we have uh, Resurrection Sunday. And so we'll have our services then as well. So this week is not like any other week. And this text that we approach uh, this morning is, uh, you know, last week we talked about the crucifixion part of Jesus's uh, of of the cross and the dying process, and today we'll look at his death and his burial. And so, just to kind of put us in put us in the right mindset, um, let's if you were to think of in terms of a timeline of Holy Week, you start uh, um, Thursday night. There's the Passover meal where Jesus gives that new commandment. He um, he takes the Passover meal and repurposes it. And kind of blows their minds for a second. They don't know what to make of it. Then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus wants them. Uh, he wants to pray, and he wants them to be with him. And so he's praying, and they're napping, and so that is happening. And then around midnight, uh, Judas shows up in the garden with the uh, uh, Jewish officials, and they arrest Jesus, and they detain him around until around sunup on Friday, and they begin the trial. There's a Jewish trial. And then they convict him, and but they can't they can't sentence him to death. That has to happen under a Roman uh, trial. So they bring him to Pilate, and there's a trial there, and Pilate convicts him, and they begin to crucify him around eight o'clock. I'm sorry, they begin to beat him and scourge him, and uh, 
the idea was let's 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 bring as much physical pain as we can just short of death um, because he needs to carry his cross and we need to be able to crucify him, which they do at nine. And uh, so they beat him and torture him for about an hour and then he has to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. At 9 a.m., they crucify him. He hangs there for three hours, which brings us to noon, which is where we pick up today. And so he's been hanging on that cross for three hours And uh, the way that they refer to time, uh, noon would be the sixth hour. So that's where we pick up. So let's look at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, so that's noon, right? There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Okay, a couple of things in that passage that are very important for us to take note of. In verse 33, it says that darkness was over the whole land. We're not talking about uh, like a storm is coming and so things get a little darker outside. We're talking about It was dark as though it was midnight, but it was noon. From noon until three, uh, complete darkness. And throughout the scriptures, darkness is associated with with really two two main things. One is divine judgment, okay, the, the judgment of God on something. The other is lament. And so the darkness, most theologians uh, would say that when we see this darkness coming, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours, that, this, that, that heaven is signaling something, that heaven is passing judgment on what is happening, and that judgment is one of lament, that heaven is weeping over what is happening. Um. This is not just a coincidence. This is not just to set the vibe. This communicates something. Um, and it's something that uh, is really important for us to keep in mind. That something is happening to Jesus, but something is also happening to the Father, to the Spirit. It's made manifest in this, this darkness that we see. It's connected to verse 24, when Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And um, you might recall that uh, in, in Jewish culture, they would, uh, they would quote a passage of, like a line from a passage of scripture as a, as a way of referencing the entire, the entire work. So um, if it were the 23rd Psalm, Jesus said, would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He's not only quoting that individual line, but he's referencing the whole thing. So he would say the first line, and then the whole the whole of it would come to mind. And so he's evoking the twenty second psalm in in this moment as he is suffering. And if you've if you've read the twenty second psalm, or if you were to go and read it, uh, you would you would you would notice that there are a lot of like parallels between what is happening to Jesus, like some of the details of what's happening to him that. David is writing about in Psalm 22. It's it's really unbelievable. But but the psalm is one of those that kind of ping pongs back and forth between between two ideas, and one of them is is what it's like to suffer unjustly. Yeah, like when when you are innocent and yet you are in a suffering situation, and just how agonizing that is. Uh, and then it. It ping pongs, so then it goes to the other this other idea of the fact that even in the midst of that, like God is going to be good to you, God is going to be faithful to you, God is going to rescue you, that the character of God is still intact. And so Jesus is evoking this psalm that's both about uh, it's terrible to suffer unjustly, but yet God is still going to be good, and God is still going to be God. Um. And what we see in that, in that, and that's, that of course has been analyzed and overanalyzed and all that stuff for, by people way smarter than me. But um, in this, I, I think it's important for our purposes today uh, to recognize that we're seeing the the relational strain that sin puts on man's relationship with God, and that's something that you and I. Uh, like we we know what that's like, right? Like you you are you're sinning intentionally, unintentionally, however you want to look at it. But you feel distant from the Lord in that, don't you? Like it's hard to it's hard to go from that to a worship service or a prayer time or a community group or something like that because you just you feel weird about it, right? It seems like God is far away from you or that you are far from him. Um, the reality is God is omnipresent. He's, he is everywhere. So you're not, you can't run away from him. That's one of the things that David reminds us of. Uh, where can I go from your, ple- from your presence, you know? Um, but, but it feels that way. And sometimes like the, the emotional side of that makes it feel very real that you and God are far apart. Um, sin does create a chasm there, like we we know that, and even and even with everything that we know, you you still it just there's just like this feeling there. And so Jesus has never had to experience that before. He has eternally existed, and all he has ever known is that unity with the Father and with the Spirit. And so now, through through crucifixion and through this dying process, as as the sins of humanity are are being put onto him as a substitute, it's almost like he's like, "What what's going on? What is going on here? You know, where's where's the unity? Where's the where's the connection? Where is that wholeness that I've always walked in? It 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 hasn't truly vaporized. Okay, the, the Trinity is not ceasing to exist in this moment. Um, the Trinity is still fully intact, but but the emotional side of it for Jesus, he's experiencing that weirdness that we experience. And he's never had to do that before. And so he's evoking this psalm that is expressing what it's like to suffer unjustly, uh, and yet at the same time also calling out on the faithfulness of God. 
And so when he says, why have you forsaken me? Um, that, that is, uh, that's a hard statement to really understand what he's meaning. Because it sounds like God's on the other side of the universe from him. But that's not what's happening in reality. But it is to his emotions. It is to his experience in this moment. That's how it feels. And so it's like he's evoking this prayer of like, I don't want to suffer unjustly and forget who you are. I want to remember who you are, just like David did. But without a doubt, one of the things that we have to recognize is that that this is a difficult moment for the Son and for the Father and for the Spirit. They're all going through this really difficult time. Sometimes this... This is interpreted to talk about, um, I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is not a word. Jesus uses the word forsaken in quoting the psalm. And so sometimes this is used to talk about the, um, that when Jesus was abandoned on the cross or, or separated, he was separated from the Father on the cross or, or whatever it might be. And, and, and I, like, that's the, that language is what I grew up, grew up with and was trained in and all that kind of stuff. But, the older I get, the more I feel like those words don't convey the right thing for for me. Um, I don't think that, that really expresses it, the the wholeness of what is going on here. Um, it's probably better, I th- I think, for us to think in terms of what is happening that Jesus is in distress, and it feels like God is very far away, and He is pushing against that, just like the psalm does. He doesn't want to give over to despair. He wants to have the faithfulness that you see in Psalm 22 with David. He just has never had to experience it before. And often this is connected to, uh, there's a verse in Habakkuk that says that that God, it says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. And so coupled with this is the idea that, that God had to look away, that the Father looked away. We sing about that in, in one of the, one of the songs that we'll sing today, spoiler, uh, about the Father turning his face away. And all that really just kind of confirms what I'm getting at here is that the, the theology gets, it's, it's a little bit tricky at times and it's very important that we get that part of it right, but maybe, Maybe theology is not what we're supposed to be getting into right now as much as we are the fact that this moment was difficult for the Son and the Father and the Spirit. That the, this is something that the Trinity has never had, they've never had to do this before. And for the Father and for the Spirit, there, there is lament, there's darkness, and they have made it dark there to express their sadness at what is happening. And Jesus is expressing his sadness. That this, from an interpersonal standpoint, like that's, that's what I feel like the emphasis needs to be for us today. There's time for the theology, the theology part, of course. But what I'm thinking is more like, can we just sit in the fact that this is a sad day for heaven? That the Father, Son, and Spirit are all weeping and, and in agony in their own different ways because of what is happening because the sin of you and I is killing Jesus and now he has died and that 
Can we weep with heaven over what is happening because Jesus is so important to us? And as Jesus is crying out and expressing this to the Father, and then he, he, it, says, it says that he uttered a loud cry and then he breathed his last. And we know from the other gospel accounts that the last thing he said was, it is finished. Could those be the, like, three of the most powerful words that we ever hear? It's almost like you can, in expressing that, you can just see, like almost feel like the, like you know when something happens and all you can do, you can just just close your eyes and you wince because it's so, it's just so terrible. That the wincing of the Trinity in this moment is something that we need, we need to join them in their pain here. And if if you've been around for a couple of years, you know that, uh, I tend to be a broken record about a lot of things. Um, one of them every year for the last couple of years has been this idea that we we push way too fast through Good Friday because we want to get to Sunday because Good Friday is sad and Sunday is happy and we don't like to be sad. We don't like to we don't like the heavy things. We don't like the difficult things and and so we're. We're trying to bypass Friday to get to Sunday. And I see it every year, and I'm not trying, I'm, I haven't looked through all of your social media accounts or anything like that. So if, if you did this, I, uh, this is not about you doing this. If you want to do this on Friday, do this on Friday, it's fine. One of the things that I see a lot in, on Facebook and Instagram and different things like that, and I, have a, I follow a lot of Christians, so I feel like this is a, enough of a trend where I can see it, is that on Friday, this Friday, People will post, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? Very famous sermon, it's awesome, and so true. Like, but I feel like the, the sentiment behind that is like, yeah, yeah, don't be too sad about Friday because Sunday, Sunday is, is going to be awesome. But the thing is, there's, what happens on Sunday doesn't make what happened on Friday okay, does it? It shouldn't. It's not. It's not okay. It's beautiful, but we shouldn't be okay with it. We shouldn't be okay with the fact that our first love had to die so that we could live. Like that should not settle well with us. We should feel loved. Like we should let it carry the weight it's supposed to carry. But there's a. We have to recognize that it's just. It's not okay. It's good. But it's not okay. The day that someone close to you dies is not a good day. Even years later, even after you've like you've you come to terms with it, you've maybe healed a little bit. But it doesn't make what happened that day. It doesn't make that a good day, does it? That's a day you have on your calendar. It's a day that when it comes around, you you kind of relive it. You think about it. It doesn't. It's not. It's not good. I'm fine with us calling it Good Friday, but I think the subtext has to be. But it's really a bad Friday because it's the day the most important person to us was slaughtered for our sake, and just the fact that it happened to him. Like that connection that we have to him should be enough for that to be a bad day. 
So, maybe this Friday, as we're, you know, it's like a day off of work for a lot of people, and it's springtime, and people are like, let's boil crawfish, and let's hang out, let's watch the baseball game, let's, you know, let's do, uh, all those things are going on. Perhaps for us, whatever it is our Fridays look like can be accompanied by the heaviness of the day. I'm not saying that we should like all we should just sit around and cry all day long. I'm not saying that, but there's a reason why. Like you'll see it this week. We'll send out, especially if you're a social media person, at at 6 a.m. like in real time, we'll put up what happened at six and what happened at nine and what happened at noon and what happened at three. And like, well, just to kind of let you know, kind of like in real time, this is what's happening. That perhaps um, there's a goodness to us letting Good Friday be what it's supposed to be. And then maybe that will change what Sunday is as well. Um, a few more details are in there, like the, the curtain being torn, and I'll come back to that in a minute. The um, the centurion, I mean, what a what a powerful statement where he's he's he watches. It says when when Jesus died in this way, that he's he's probably seen a lot of death in his day. I watched this happen a whole lot. Maybe he observed the whole thing in that. Like, isn't it awesome that it's it's not a theologian, it's not a uh, it's not a person of the on the Sanhedrin, it's not a Pharisee, it's not a Sadducee, it's not one of the disciples, it's not even someone who followed him. That the first person to say it after he's dead is a Roman centurion. He's like, surely, this was the Son of God. Like, almost like, what did we just do? We just killed the Son of God. Power, a powerful moment. Now look at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, What Mark is doing here is probably is he's building a case for the resurrection by bringing in these eyewitnesses. Um, uh, it's a, that's a very important thing in this culture uh, and very important to the resurrection story, which we'll talk about next week, is the eyewitness part of it. And so he's very careful to name names, and uh, I love the fact that they're all women. Like, where's the, where are the disciples? They have scattered. Like, they are running for their lives. And here's this faithful group of women um, and who are who've watched the whole thing and they're connected to what's happening. And uh, they partner in the next section with Joseph of Arimathea. So look at verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, now even right, even right there. So Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy dude, a part of the council, which means he was a part of the Sanhedrin. Like he was a part of the Jewish authority group who sentenced Jesus to death, like who found him guilty. It says in Luke that he was not in agreement with them, that he was opposed to what they were deciding. And it says right there that he was seeking the kingdom of God. And so uh, it, like there, there were people there who believed that Jesus was telling the truth. Now here's this this wealthy, powerful person, and um, many believe that 
like because he was he was like quote unquote a somebody he was able to like really expedite the burial process which kept the would keep the timeline right for all the prophecies about three days um so 44 Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion he asked him whether he was already dead when he learned from the centurion that he was dead he granted the corpse to Joseph Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Okay? Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph is one of Jesus' brothers, so that's talking about Jesus' mom. So, um, Mary Magdalene, Jesus' mom, eyewitnesses to where he was buried. And, you know, we talk about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, a lot of emphasis on the death, a lot of emphasis, emphasis on the resurrection. But what about the burial? Like, why is the burial important? Burial is important uh, in part because uh, it proves that he really died. Like, he died an actual death. And so they took him down, and they they did what they would do with someone who had died. They prepared him for burial, just like they would have prepared anyone else for burial. That there, it, it, it removes the all the different like theories about well, maybe he didn't really he didn't actually die. Maybe he was passed out, and this and this and this. Um, Rome declared him dead and handed the body over, and they did what you do with a with a dead body. Tried to do it quickly because of Passover. Um, but it, it proves that he really died, and that's very important to us because we we needed him to actually die. It sounds weird to say that, but we needed him to be dead. And the burial proves, especially the eyewitness accounts, and by someone from the Sanhedrin being a part of it, it proves that he was actually dead. And to get into the to get into the weeds a little bit on why do we need him to die? There's a, there's a lot of weeds to cover with that. So let me just let me pick one one weed to focus on for a minute. Like I've talked the last couple of weeks, and some of this is because I've been I've just been reading a lot of different things. Um, and I've talked about like sin in in relation to a sickness. I'm making that comparison, and that's not a that's not unique to me. That's there's there's a whole stream of writers and thinkers who who will use that terminology and pull that from from the scriptures, like in Isaiah 53 about by his wounds we are healed. And so sometimes we're thinking like the like that's like a physical thing, or maybe even just maybe salvation and that kind of stuff. But but to think of healed in terms of sickness. Uh, that sin is like a like a, a virus. You know what a virus? Heard of this? To think of sin as a virus of sorts. Like if you're a parent, let's let's all pretend. That's all. Some of you are, and some of you aren't. Let's pretend that you're a parent. Your your child has a deadly virus. Like this, whatever it is, it's going to kill him. And the doctors come to you and they say, "We have found a way." that we can take that virus out of your child and we can give it to you. 
It has to be given to someone. But we can, we can save your child by taking it out of them. And if you're willing, we'll put it into you. And it will kill you. But your child will live. If you were a parent, would, would you agree to that? Of course you would agree with that. In fact, if you have mom and dad standing there, they're probably going to get into a debate over who's going to take the virus because they're both going to want to do it. You know, like that's that's what love drives you to do. Love, like real agape, like r- biblical love, is self-sacrificing. And so, if you were to take take that little like um, analogy, which of course comes up short in different ways, but just just humor me for a second. You take that, and you were to apply that to like general humanity that the sons and daughters of God have a virus. We know it as sin. The symptom, the way, the reason why you know that you have it is because the main symptom is self obsession. It's, it's that pride. And, uh, I love me more than I love anyone else. And I'm all about my own agenda and my own ideas. And, even God, like he's kind of a rival to me, like all that stuff that we try to act like isn't there, but it's, it's there. Um, that's the primary symptom, and it, this virus always brings about death. Every day of your life until you actually die, it's just bringing death. It's just what it does. That that's the reality of what the image bearers of God were born into. You and I, sons and daughters, born with this deadly virus. And stuck in bondage to it, that there's just nothing that you can do. Nothing you can do. Remember the remember the first little first few weeks of the coronavirus thing when it was it was so mysterious, and they're saying like, yeah, well, this is happening in Italy, and we're about three weeks behind them, and Italy's like about to melt down, and you're thinking, what 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 is coming? Like the the doctors like, we have no idea, you know. Remember how terrible that was? That was we were in bondage to to that thing, but nothing compared to this kind of bondage that I'm talking about in terms of the the sin virus. And so God, Father, Son, Spirit get together and they come up with a solution, which is substitution. That's a part of of the of the fix. So just like the doctor came to the parent or parents and said, "Hey." I present you with an option. The Trinity at some point got together and said, "This is going. This is the option. This is the this is the rescue plan. This is how we are going to approach this pandemic of sin is substitution." And so, just like in the parent analogy, Father, Son, Spirit, driven by love, transfer the virus to themselves. Now, yes, it went to Jesus, of course. But the impact on the Father and the Spirit is still there. Like they, they're, they're three, but they're one. So they took on, they took on this virus. Each of them in their own unique way. And so let's, let's take the virus from, from our sons and daughters. Let's transfer it. In this case, the way the plan went down, transfer it to the son. Let the sons and daughters be healed. Let the son suffer the virus. And let it run its course, which is what we have studied the last couple of weeks. And we see the final result today. 
So it says in Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. So the virus comes out of us into Christ. We get to be healed. We have the freedom from that bondage. And yes, our bodies still, we still have those like residual aftershocks, right? Like, you know how with COVID, like some of you have had it and like you get better, but like your sense of taste or smell, it takes a while to recover that, you know? We have those after effects of sin as well. Even, even though we've been freed from bondage and healed from it, there's, we're still dealing with it, right? We're still like in recovery from it. The bondage is gone, but the, it's still like kind of the aftershocks linger with us. On the other hand, it says he gets wounded. We get healed, he gets wounded. And so he has to suffer the true nature of the virus, let it run its course, ultimately leading to his death. But when he died, do you know what else died? The virus. He took the virus to the grave with him. See, that's the, that's the thing to go back to the parent-child thing. Is the doctor would say, hey, we take this out of your kid, and not only would it kill you, but then no one else would ever get it. Like it's, it's being dealt with permanently. That's what Jesus is doing, is he's bringing it to the grave. Father and the Spirit know we're going to raise him up, but you know what's going to stay there? Sin and death. <laughs> That's going to stay put. That will not be resurrected. And so this brilliant plan involved the need for there to be an actual death because we really need the virus to be completely eliminated so that we can walk in an open relationship with God again. Okay, So I'm about to land the plane, so just stick with me for a second. Think about the curtain. Remember, Jesus died and the veil of the curtain was torn in two, is what it says. So if you were to go into the temple, uh, if you were here the last couple of weeks, I talked about the sacrificial system and you bring, you bring the animal to the priest. Um, and through all that, there, were, there were, were parts of the temple where you were allowed to go. And then there was another place where the, only the priests could go called the holy place. And then past that, there was another, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only on the Day of Atonement. And even then, he had to, he had to be, he had to go through some things. And here's why. Because the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's where, it's where the, the presence of God was manifest among his people in, in an unhindered way. So you're talking about the full, unhindered holiness of God. Now, what happens when the holiness of God is it comes into contact with any, any kind of sin? Well, the holiness eliminates that sin. He is light. What does light do to darkness? It eradicates it. That's what holiness does. Holiness purifies. Now, the problem is, guess who's carrying around the impurity? You're... His kids, his sons and his daughters. So if he unleashes that holiness, he kills all his children. You know. So, I don't know how this works, but he said, "So I'm, I'm, let's put a curtain between us. Let's put a veil between us." So you had a. It was fifteen. It was a cube of like 15, 15 feet in dimension. The curtain itself was between three and four inches thick. Um, <clears throat> and and so the idea was this this curtain this veil was there to protect us in our like 
carrying of sin to protect humans from the holiness of God destroying us so that we could coexist in a relationship. There's protection from that. Very kind. Very loving. God says, I want to be with you, but I don't want to destroy you. Here's how it's going to work. A curtain. When Jesus died, he'd been talking about everything with the temple was about to change. In fact, it's going to be torn down. You know, he was kept forecasting this. And when he dies, suddenly there's this, this rip, like it tears from, t- from top to bottom. Now, it's 15 feet high, so if you're going to tear it, uh, you probably would start at the top. And it would take, it would take quite a amount of work based on the, how this thing is built, which if you want to read about it, it's all in the Old Testament. That God ripped the, ripped the curtain. God said, you know what? This, this is no longer necessary because the virus has been taken care of. You have been cleansed of the virus. Therefore, my holiness is not a threat to you anymore. And when I say threat, I'm talking about the good kind of threat. You don't have to be afraid of my unhindered presence anymore. We can be together again because Jesus is dead. Like that's, that's why we needed him to die. He knew he needed to die. The Father and the Spirit knew that he needed to die. They were all in on it. And so that curtain tearing apart, that is signaling to us, is showing us that everything is different from this point on. Like this has changed absolutely everything. That's why, in part, in part, that's why we needed him to die. And now the holiness of God is something we, we bask in that, right? Like we, we can't get enough of it. Like it's, it's how we're blessed and kept. Because Jesus was willing to take our sin to the grave and the Father and the Spirit were willing to suffer Jesus taking our sin to the grave. And as our sin killed him and ran its course, the whole time, everything that is going on here, is it's not driven by anger. It's not about punishing sin. It's not about, you know, it's not this like vindictive like kind of situation. It's just one act of love after another. But that's so hard for us to grasp, right? Because we're because of the harshness of the crucifixion and just the sadness of it and the heaviness of it. It's so hard to sit here and say, what a loving, beautiful, heavy, difficult, but loving thing, you know? That's how we have to see it. We can't only see Sunday as love. We have to see Friday as love as well. So let me let me read you three three passages, like short passages, as I as I close, that I think will help us like kind of pull some of these things together. This one is from Hebrews. Now think about the think about the curtain and the veil and the temple and like Jesus changing everything. Um, this is Hebrews ten, starting in nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying it's safe now. Remember when Adam and Eve were hiding in the tree line because of their sin, they were so ashamed? God's saying, walk in the light as I am in the light. I've made it. I made it okay. I've made it safe. The curtain the curtain is open. Draw near with confidence. 2 Corinthians 5:21 Paul says it this way. He says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot lots to unpack in that verse. But the goal there was that that exchange so that you and I are a demonstration of the righteousness of God. That God is saying, look look at what I can do. Look at what I have done. Look what I can do for you and you and you and you and you. Bring this invitation to anyone who will hear it, to everyone you come across. You can become the righteousness of God. That the righteousness that is Jesus can can be applied to you, can be draped over you like a robe. Maybe John 3 says it well also. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's, that's good. That's good. It's, it, it's all love. It's all love. Even the heavy stuff, even the hard stuff, there's a, there's a beauty to it. A different beauty on Friday than, than on Sunday, but they're both, they're both so beautiful. And so as we work through this last week of Lent and the events of Holy Week and everything that's coming, let's make every effort to be present in the beautiful things and the hard things and all these different expressions of love that we see coming our way. Um, yeah, so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a little bit and just kind of let let this stir in us. So let's let's stand together. As our musicians come back up. God, what what gratitude uh, this stirs in my heart, and I believe in all of our hearts. Where we're able to see a little more clearly what Jesus meant when he said that there's no greater expression of love and for someone to lay down their lives for their friends. In the context of what I was saying earlier, lay down lives for their sons and their daughters. That this is what agape love looks like, is is in part that, that willingness to sacrifice for yourself in order to bring about the, the healing and goodness for others. And Jesus, I don't, I don't know that I'll ever get over that verse that part of Isaiah says that by your wounds were healed. It's just, it's 
quite stunning and sobering in a great, great way. And I pray that we would that we would receive it the way you intended us to receive it. That human interpretation and all that kind of stuff would would really just kind of be put to the side and that we would be open enough to say, God, what are you trying to say to us through this? How do you see the events of Friday? We want to see it like you see it. Your scriptures tell us over and over and over again that it's it's love. Like this is what love looks like. We need your help to see it that way. But that's our desire. To see it as you see it. And so, yes, in the days ahead, would you would you take that deeper for us? But this morning, before we part ways in a little bit, could we just be really present here to receive what you want to speak to us, what you want to remind us of, what you want to just affirm? And God, if there's anyone here who just who has has really never come to you and and said, I believe that you came to heal me of this virus. I believe you're the one. If no one's if someone is here who has not had that conversation, God, I pray that these moments that, that would happen. And that afterwards they have the courage to stick around and talk to anybody, come find me, whatever it may be. But that this would be the day of salvation and sanctification for us. So God, as we sing, may you just have our, have your way in our hearts and in our minds.